common in our culture to be great about Jesus being our Savior, but wanting no part of Jesus to be our Lord. And the really challenging thing about being in the Bible Belt is that you, we think that He can be one and not the other. It's very challenging. We've been in a series, a discipleship series, where we're talking about we're talking about this difference and about how primarily in Scripture, the question is not, what do you profess to be? Do you call yourself a Christian? What we see in Scripture, what it means to be united to Jesus, to come into His life, is to become a disciple. That's what Scripture calls a person who is following Jesus. It calls them a disciple. There's not two different categories. Well, you can be a Christian, but if you're really serious, then you're going to become a disciple. In other words, we come to Scripture... If you are a follower of Jesus, that means you are a disciple. That means you are someone who is learning to live your life as Jesus would live your life if Jesus were living your life. That's Dallas Willard's definition of what it means to be a disciple. So we're walking through Luke and learning about this. We're watching Jesus. We're saying, what does it look like to become like Him? To live my life like Him. To live in the kingdom of God right here in the midst of the world. To live as a a citizen of a foreign kingdom that is coming. And so that's what we're learning. And our passage this morning gives us a really, I think, tremendous picture of what is a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple and how does one become one? So let's look at our passage together. We're in Luke 5, we're working through Luke. This story here has kind of got a contrast going on right off the bat. Right off the bat, we see Jesus teaching, we see his popularity, and we see a crowd. We see a crowd that is pressing in on him. Jesus is standing at the edge of what Luke calls the lake, but it's the Sea of Galilee. He's standing at the edge of the sea, and the crowd's are pressing in on him so heavy, it's backing him into the water. We we see this picture of just the enthusiasm of the crowd, of the excitement of the crowd, of the buzz around Jesus. You know, the the words getting out, people are are getting excited, they're coming from all over to to hear Jesus teach and to hear him talk. And that, that becomes a contrast in this story for us with the crowds and all of their enthusiasm And the disciples. As Jesus here in this passage will call his very first disciples into life with him. But as we see this picture right off the bat of all of this excitement, all of the crowds, it's helpful to know that Jesus was unimpressed with crowds. This is where he's very different from Americans. This is where he's very different from American pastors. I love a crowd. A full room. It's exciting. Feels like something's happening. And don't we all like that? Don't we all like the hype? Don't we all like the excitement? You know, the the things that are trending, the things that are that are uh, going viral, the things that everybody's into. We love we love to gather and chase after those things. And you know the reality about Jesus? He just didn't put much stock in the crowds. Sure, he taught them. He was teaching them about the kingdom. He was teaching them about about his father and about what it meant to follow him. But he knew deep down, you aren't really serious about this. He knew deep down that ultimately, 
whenever they started to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does it cost you, and really whenever he began to talk about a cross, they were going to bail. In fact, they all bailed. All of these crowds running after Jesus, they were out. At the end, Jesus dies alone. And so that forms a contrast here with the small few that Jesus calls to himself in this passage. So we see that as we walk and enter into the story here, Jesus is at the edge of the lake. The crowds are coming in. There's the buzz and there's the excitement. Jesus is teaching. He sees a couple boats. There's some fishermen there who are cleaning their nets. They've been fishing all night. And Jesus helps himself to Simon Peter's boat. It says Simon here. He's later Jesus will change his name to Peter. But Jesus helps himself into Peter's boat. Into Simon's boat. He invites himself into Peter's life. Peter did not invite Jesus into his life. Jesus invited himself into Peter's life. He gets in his boat. And he says, put out just a little bit. I need a little distance here. So they get in the boat and he comes out a little bit. And Jesus sits down and he's teaching from the boat. But that's not really the main thing that Luke wants you to see here. Yeah, he's, he's teaching them. But then the real action starts. He's done and he looks over at Peter and he says, let's go fishing. Peter's a fisherman. In fact, they've been fishing all night. And so Jesus says, let's go out and let's let down the nets for a catch. And you see Peter's response here. I, I love his response. In his response, he says, listen, I know you don't know a lot about fishing. I happen to be a fisherman here. We, we were fishing all night. We fished all night long. We didn't catch any fish. But because you say so, we'll do it. This is kind of Peter, you know, showing, you know, showing some deal of respect to the teacher, to the rabbi. But really knowing in his heart, we're not going to catch anything. It's not how it works. Peter knows fishing. You know, he's saying, let's, okay, we'll do it if you say so. But really down deep, he's thinking, it's, it's, you know that commercial where the guy's getting a tattoo? And he's, he's asking him, you know, he's asking him, are you, are you a good tattoo artist? And the guy looks at him and he goes, stay in your lane, bro. That's what Peter's thinking here. Stay in your lane. You stick to the teaching, I know fishing, okay? But okay, if you say so. And so they go out. And they let down the nets. Now, here's one of the realities here. I, one of the commentators points this out. In the nets that they used in this day only worked at night. Because the nets were thick. And, so when, and they were dark. And so whenever you let them down in water during the day, the fish very clearly would see the net and they would avoid it. So they had to fish at night. So here's Jesus in the middle of the day on top of a really bad fishing season. Say, no, no, no. Let's, let's go out for a catch. They go out, they let down the nets, and what happens? The most incredible catch Peter has ever seen is on their hands. It's literally, as Luke says, it's breaking the nets. They're, pull, they're trying to pull it in the boats. It's sinking the boats. They're calling for the other guys to come over. They're filling up their, their boats. There's fish everywhere. They're overwhelmed. And did you see Peter's response in verse 8? This is really the focal point of the passage. If you're trying to get at, you know, where, where does the, the whole action pivot and turn 
What is the centerpiece in the way that, that they would write biblical narratives? They were arranged with a pivot point in the middle that was often the most critical moment. You want to know what the pivot point is here? It's verse 8. Did you see Peter's response? Look again, verse 8. When, Peter, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why? What an interesting response. Peter doesn't say, Woohoo! Wow! I gotta post this. I gotta share this. This is the best fishing day I've ever had. Hey, you need to stick around with us. We're gonna do well here if we if when you're around we, we catch fish like this. It wasn't any of that. Instead, in the face of this catch, Peter is undone. He is struck. Did you know? It's very interesting. Did you notice how he said, Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. What are we talking about sin here? What's going on, Peter? What do you make of that response? Why is he struck with repentance? That's what you see. Just a beautiful picture of repentance. Of Peter at the end of himself. Utterly broken over his sin. What do you mean? What are you talking about sin? What did he do wrong here? You see, what we're seeing is really an incredibly common reaction in Scripture whenever someone encounters the glory of God. You see it in so many different places. When someone encounters God's glory and His power and His presence, it's interesting, always the response is something almost exactly like this. I mean, you think about Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with that passage at all, is. When, when Isaiah comes into the heavenly throne room and he sees God seated upon his throne and the, the train of his robe fills the temple, the whole temple is shaking under the weight of God's glory. And what was Isaiah's immediate response? He didn't say, cool, I can't believe I get to see this. You remember what he said? He's face down immediately. And he says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. What's going on? When you encounter the glory of God, there is only one natural reaction, and it happens automatically. You are struck with just how different you are from Him. You're immediately struck with how unworthy you are. Struck with your sin. Struck with how unfit for the holy presence of God you are. And that's what's happening to Peter here. As he's seen Jesus' glory. I mean, Jesus knew He was going to do this. Peter was with Jesus. He heard His teaching, but he didn't see Him. He didn't see Him here. He didn't know who he was, but in that moment, it struck him, all of Jesus' glory, all of Jesus' power, and Peter is undone with repentance. And did you notice Jesus' response? So incredibly gracious. Look at what Jesus says, second part of verse 10. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Peter. It's acceptance. It's a response of grace. Jesus knew all of those things about Peter. And in that moment, at that place of just utter brokenness, Jesus graciously says, Peter, 
It's okay. I accept you. I know all of that. In fact, everything that Jesus is doing here is a setup to bring Peter to that particular place. You know, the reality is that's what Jesus is always up to in our life. That's how we call someone. That's how you begin as a disciple. And it's also how you grow as a disciple. That Jesus is always bringing us to this place, to the end of ourself. He's always bringing us to this place where we come face to face with the reality of our hearts, with the reality of our brokenness. It's what He's up to in our life. Not so that we would be beat down, not so that we would be discouraged, but so that we would be in a place where we can experience and know deeply our need of His grace. This is the heart of discipleship. This is where it starts. This is where transformation happens. Of Jesus bringing us to the end of ourself. And Jesus saying, It's okay. Don't be afraid. I accept you. I love you. Receive my grace for you. And it is out of that experience of grace that Jesus now calls him into something new. See, again, that same verse that we read, second part of verse 10. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. You will catch people. You see, Jesus calls him to a whole new priority in life. It's a new identity. It's a new calling. You know, Peter was a a fisherman. He fished for fish. And Jesus says, meeting me, And following me gives you a whole new purpose for every area of your life. You are now going to catch people. It's out of that experience of grace that that call to mission comes. And becoming a disciple is about Jesus' mission now becoming your primary mission. That His purposes in your life, in every area of your life, now take precedence. It's a new identity. It's a new way of seeing your life. It's a new way of seeing every single area of your life. That now my identity in all these areas of my life, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, is that I'm someone who's catching people. I'm about people. Not just about myself. Not just about my priorities. Not just about my family. Not just about what I want. Not just about my success. When I become a disciple of Jesus... I'm called into being about other people. I'm I'm called into loving people and serving people and seeing people. That, That becomes my vocation now. I'm about catching people. Bringing them into the kingdom of God. That becomes my identity now. At the heart of being a disciple means that you are someone who is making other disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who's making other disciples. That's like at the heart of the identity of being a disciple. You see, his mission now becomes your mission. Now, we might hear that and say, wait a minute, I can't do that. Um, Many of us feel so inadequate. How can I make disciples? I'm barely one myself. How can I do this? Isn't that just something for like the professional super spiritual people? I mean, isn't it just the pastors who make disciples or the people who have these abilities to teach things or whatever? And the answer is no. If you're a disciple, you can do this. Not because of anything in you, 
but because of the Spirit of the one who lives within you. And not only can you do it, it's what you're called to do. We don't all do that in the same way. All of our gifts are not the exact same. It doesn't mean that you now become a teacher, that you've got to go around preaching. That does, that, that's not the same gift for every person. But it means according to your gift and the, the opportunities that he gives you, you are a person who is now fishing for other people. And that's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And then Luke leaves us with this and closes the story with this. Just the, the response in verse 11. Just notice this response. As they've encountered Jesus, they've experienced his grace, been called now into mission. Look at the response. And this response, verse 11, is like the ideal picture of the response of discipleship. Look at what it says. Verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They pulled their livelihood up on shore. They pulled their identity up on shore. They pulled everything that they had up on shore and left everything and followed Him. So what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that you leave everything and follow Jesus. Everything. Now, wait a minute, are you telling me i got to move somewhere? You know, this is my fear as a, an early believer. If I follow Jesus, I know what he's going to do. He's going to make me move to somewhere, you know, in Siberia and be a missionary. Does it mean that? Does it mean I'm going to have to change my job? Does it mean I'm going to have to move somewhere? Does it mean I'm going to have to fundamentally change all these things in my life? Does it mean that that I'm going to have to sell everything that I have and give it to the poor? Maybe. He might. He does sometimes. But here's what it means for everybody. Everything you have gets put on the table. Everything. Or you can't be his disciple. He's very clear about that. Everything you have, you say, here. It's yours. My money, my children, my work, my house, my time, everything I've got is yours. That's what it means to leave it. It doesn't always mean walk away and go do something else. It means leave all of those things as a sense of controlling all of those things. It means surrendering every area of your life to Jesus. That's what it means. He, he now comes before everything in my life. His priorities supersede every other priority in my life. This is what it means for Jesus to be your Lord. It means everything in your life you take in and you say, here, it's yours. That's what it means to be a disciple. Is that scary for anybody here? It scares the bejesus out of me. You need to be scared by that because it brings you to this place of really seeing the cost of it. This is the place that Jesus calls us. This is the essence of discipleship. So here's the question for us. How do you do that? You wrestle with that? How do I do that? 
Because the reality is, for me, I don't know about you, but all these areas of my life are like, my grip is strong on all these areas of my life. And I want to give them to Jesus, but it's so hard. And here's what I often find happening. I, I have these times in my life where I do this, and then I do this. For me, it's daily. For me, every day, I have to release control to Jesus. This is incredibly costly. And so the question is, how do you do that? How do you leave everything and follow Jesus? And let me just tell you, it's not by willpower. Because it won't last. It's not by strength that you do this. You know how you do it? An experience of His grace in the place of your brokenness. That's what changes you from within. That's what we got to have. There's got to be change on the inside that empowers you to say, it's all yours. Everything I got. And that change only happens... As you are driven to the end of yourself and in that place, meet Jesus and His grace. And not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but continually. We say that all the time, right? The gospel's not just how you begin the Christian life, it's how you grow. That's how you grow. I had this uh, incredible teacher in my life, the, the, the most impactful, influential teacher I've ever had in my life was one of my professors in seminary. And the unique thing about him is that all of my classmates would say the same thing about this one particular teacher. That under his teaching, we grew more than we did anywhere else. That we were more shaped by this one teacher. Now, some of you know that teacher and he's a little crazy. But here is what made him, and I I hear people say it all the time, what what was it about him and his teaching that so changed you? And it was this, and he told us this right off the bat. We had our first class was with this professor, his name's Richard Pratt. In our very first class, we would come in, and he would say, my job is to protect you from the church. That's a great, you know, welcome to seminary kind of introduction, Right? And my goal is for you to have a crisis in here so you don't have a crisis out there. And he would say, now here's the reality. All of you come into seminary with a sense of, and here's how he would describe it, a sense of equilibrium. That's what he called it. That is this sense of like, you get it. You know how everything fits together. You think you understand all of these things about God and how he works and his word. And and you, you, you feel like you're in a good place personally and everything. You're in a place of equilibrium. Everything makes sense and fits together. And he would say, you cannot learn in that place. You can't learn. There's no hunger to learn, and I can't teach you anything. So here is my goal. I have to break your equilibrium. I have to take you into a place of crisis. I have to take the things that you think you understand all the way in and out the, the, the fact that you feel like you've you're just got it down. You know how to do this thing. I've got to take that, and I've got to break it. And you're going to feel like you're drowning when I do that. And you're going to want me to save you, and I'm not going to do it. Because that is the place where you will learn. You see, he was the master teacher because he understood that. We cannot learn when we're full. 
We cannot learn when we think we get it all. We cannot learn when life is working. We cannot learn whenever we feel like we have arrived, whenever we feel like we've got all this put together, whenever we feel like we used to be a sinner, but now I'm pretty good. I got a few areas I'm working on, but basically I'm okay. And in that place, you cannot learn. You cannot grow. You see, Jesus is the master teacher. You know what he does if you're a disciple of Jesus? He breaks your equilibrium over and over and over. That's what he does for Peter here. Peter's got it all figured out. He knows what's happening. What is Jesus doing here? He brings Peter to the end of himself so that Peter can grow, so that Peter can meet Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, He's constantly doing that in your life. Thankfully, not totally constantly, but we're all the time facing these things in our life where, we're, where it can be suffering that He brings into our life, whether it can be just uh, the hardship of a relationship, whether it can be a struggle in our life, whether it can be uh, a sense of our own sin, whether it be we encounter Him in some way that it just exposes the depth of our sin. And so, so often, we're trying to avoid those areas in our life. We're trying to just hold it all together. And you see, Jesus would say to us, you cannot learn there. You cannot grow there. So he's often and always taking us to this place where we're at the end of ourself, where we're broken, where we see our sin. And Jesus meets us in that place and says, don't be afraid. I've got you, and I love you, and now you're ready to learn. Let's take these sermon notes here and just work through a few of these questions here to try to bring it home and apply it to our hearts. There should be a pen in your pew if you'll hunt around just a little bit. And we've talked about this in our discipleship series. We're, we're in training here. We're in the gym, we're working out, so let's pick some weights up here and do a little working out. I think, I think here's the first question, and the most critical question to work through here. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Another way of putting that related to the passage is, are you in the crowd, or are you in the boat? See, if you're in the crowd, you can be pumped about Jesus. You can be excited about what he's doing. But if you're in the boat, that's a whole different reality, isn't it? Where you're with him, you're being confronted by him, and you're meeting him in the place of need in your life. You're being challenged by him in your life. Which one are you? And so here's the second question. Has Jesus ever brought you to a place of brokenness like this? Has he ever brought you to the end of yourself? Has he ever wrecked you? I was talking to somebody before the service about that. You've got to be wrecked. You can't grow. You can't fall in love with Jesus unless he first wrecks you. And listen, some of us have a higher capacity for pain than others, right? I'm kind of one of those. 
<clears throat> it takes different levels of things to wreck us. And so some of us, we think, hey, I'm a really strong person. You know, that's not always a good thing because it just takes more to wreck you. And maybe some of us, even right now, are so strong we won't be wrecked. Have you ever been wrecked? Has Jesus ever brought you to the very end of yourself? And has he ever met you in that place with his grace? Is he doing that now in your life? Are you experiencing that? Both the wrecking and the comfort of his love. Because it's not just how you begin, it's how you grow. So is that happening in your life? And has that happened? And then here's the last question to work through. What would it look like for you to live each day of this week as a fisher of people? What would it look like to step into this week with that identity in your mind and in your heart? That I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I'm a fisherman, and I'm fishing for people. And think about the different realms of your life. Think about your home. Don't forget your home. It starts in your home. But think about your work or your school. Kids, this is just as much for you guys as it is for adults. Think about your school. Think about your work. Think about your neighborhood. Think about our community of Dade County. Think about the places that you are throughout the week and what would it look like for you to be a fisher of people in those places? It starts with a new kind of mindset. So I imagine for a lot of us, God's bringing people into our life and we're just invisible to it. I love how Jesus would always see people. He'd be in a crowd and he'd just see somebody. And moves towards them. What would it look like to be a fisher of people in your life this week? Let's take just a few moments and maybe interact over some of that. What strikes you about that? What strikes you about what, how you see Jesus moving and calling in this passage? In what ways might you be challenged by that identity to be a fisher of people? Let's hear from each other. Yeah. Um, Jesus was not my Lord. I was certainly walking. Um, he he met, might have been my Savior, was not my Lord. And um, my freshman year of college is when I really, it when he disturbed me um, significantly. But I just wanted to share for people that, um, my freshman year, that first semester, um, I heard a sermon, a talk, and there were some of these same questions, and I, some of the same questions about the application, or um, do you see yourself morally in the crowd? Has Jesus ever brought you to a place of brokenness? Specifically, I think like Peter, the question was, have you seen God's glory? Yeah. And I thought, I don't know if I have. And then I thought, well, if I don't know if I have, I definitely haven't. Because if I've seen God's glory and if I have been um, disturbed, kind of some of these other questions, I would know it. Yeah. And I don't think I have. And so at that point, I was wanting, to, wanting it more. And I just prayed, Lord, show me your glory. Or, Lord, like, I, 
I feel like I might be in the crowd, but I want to be in the boat. And of course, as he always does, he did it, and he did it quickly. And I was very disturbed and um, probably have been pretty disturbed ever since. But I just yeah. say that hopefully as an encouragement to some people here, like me, might have, hi, hi, me, um, might have she wants the mic. R- read some of these questions and been like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know. That was a great place for me to be because I was able to be like, God, I don't know, do it. And, yeah. he, and he answered it. So yes. anyway, just... That is a dangerous prayer and a beautiful prayer and a prayer that he will always answer, if you really mean it. Show me your glory. And just know that means getting wrecked, because anybody who sees God's glory is going to get wrecked. And I think the problem for a lot of us, and this problem in my heart, I don't want to be wrecked. I want life to fit together. I want it to be comfortable. I want to have my little freedoms, and I want to have my little boundaries. You know, boundaries are so huge in our culture. And just know, one, that's not living. But if you go to God and say, show me your glory, he's going to wreck you. But that has a beautiful end. I'm just thinking of how scary it is to consider giving up your identity in the, <clears throat> in the things of the world. How scary it must have been for Peter to... I mean, I mean, I bet you felt like a strong man being such a good fisherman. Yeah. And found so much of his identity if if they had, you know, like a f- beautiful, like a cool, outdoorsy fisherman fleece to wear. He would have wanted the, you know, the newest <laughs> right. one. Yeah, he had the gear on. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, to, I'm just, yeah, struck. I'm thinking about the application in my life. I get so uh, wrecked at work whenever my um, aptitude is challenged. Mm-hmm. Is that the right word? Like, my ability to do well is challenged. Yeah. And it, it makes me very angry, and uh, it doesn't make, it doesn't, I'm not in a good place to be Jesus at work when I'm so angry about how my aptitude's challenged. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess just a way for me to to apply it is just to not allow my identity to be in the, in my ability, or even how my coworker or boss views my ability. Yeah. But for for me to to know how God views me and to function out of that and how the most important thing is to be a fisherman at my work, not yeah. the best, you know, furniture builder yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. So I think Trent, that's just a great simple little illustration of probably what we can all identify with is that there's these areas of struggle in our life, areas that expose, you know, Real struggle, strike at our identity or whatever, and we, I think a lot of times we think in those areas, I got I to gotta fix this, okay? I got to get better here. You know, I'm, I'm doing bad here. I got to do good. And sometimes that can be a way of avoiding getting wrecked. You know, I think what you've got to do is allow those everyday areas of struggle drive us to Jesus in the way that it does Peter here. You know, where, where you say, I, I'm at the end of myself and I need your grace. And the only, really the only way that we change in areas in our life is being driven through the power of his grace. Does that make sense? So I know with my life, I see some of these areas, oh, I want to I engage better as a father. I want to, you know, whatever it might be. 
and I can just get down and say, I got to do better, I got to do better, rather than letting it drive me to Jesus and then in the power of his grace changing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it actually, instead of being a human doing, you be a human being, and the doing yeah. comes out of the being. Right, yeah. A child yeah. of God. That's a good way to put it. That's good. Carrie? Your hand's still up. Um, I think, Hutch, I think something that struck me today was I had never really observed uh, the way that Peter entered into that interaction at the beginning. Um, I just, I don't know, I just never noticed before. But his sort of attitude of, like, he wasn't in the crowd. He was probably just kind of, like, watching this guy, and he was doing his job and probably yeah. want to go home and... Just his sort of assumption that he knew he knew what he was doing, um, but this kind of crazy guy wanted to come in and um, mess around in his boat, yeah. and he was like, "Okay, sure, blow his world." Yeah, up. but I think I just was struck by how often that is my attitude, um, and even even as a believer and follower of Jesus, how I slip back into that mm. of being like all right, now I know what I'm doing. I'm feeling good. You can do something if you want, Jesus, but, mm-hmm. like, it's kind of whatever. Yeah. Um, and then how, and and then that Jesus entered in to a place, to that place with Peter, uh-huh. not a place where he was working really hard to, like, have faith in yeah, him. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that just strikes me because I think, oh, I'm not doing enough mm-hmm. for God to change me. Yeah but rather to see Jesus enter into a place of ambiguity and kind of like just laziness almost Mm -hmm. um, regarding spiritual affairs. I don't know. It's like encouraging and then to see that encounter that happens and the kind of dramaticness of Peter's repentance. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it just strikes me. Yeah, I think oftentimes we want to change and we want to grow in our own strength, you know, in our own power. Okay, well, this is an area I need to work on, so I'm going to work on it or whatever. Because we don't like that, that sense of helplessness and neediness and being wrecked, you know. But that, that is the way of Jesus, you know. I mean, think about these guys following Jesus. How many times must have they have just thought, oh, my gosh, like, I thought I, ha- I, thought I got it. I don't get it at all. You know, at one point, Jesus will look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. You know, I mean, it's just, it's incredible that Jesus was always disrupting these guys, but not, not because he didn't love them. It was because he loved them, because he knew that's the only way that you, you grow. It's the only way that you learn. So it must have been hard to be <clears throat> one of those disciples because you're always getting disrupted. But the reality is that's true for all of us. So to be a disciple of Jesus, it's kind of like you got to learn to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. You got to learn to be um, to live in that place of challenge and desperation and need, and that's where He wants us because that's where we learn and that's where we grow. Anybody else?
Sarah. Yeah, I feel like for me, and I would love to hear like your response to this, but I feel like I've been wrecked in God, and I felt like closer to God, and I've like the action of like, okay, that too, like me giving that to God, and it's been really healing and really encouraging. But I think there's also been a lot of times where I've been wrecked and haven't surrendered. And so I'm always really scared to like have that prayer that Ashley prayed because I'm like, well, what if this time like I don't go all the way and it's just really painful and there's like no healing or like God doesn't catch me kind of thing. And so I think even as I say that, like knowing some, it's on me, like the surrender wasn't there. So it's like, it's not God not delivering me, but. I don't know. That's just like a really like I'm like, yeah, man, I want I want those times that I was wrecked and it was like healing and really growing. But then my fear is like, well, it's probably just going to be a lot of pain and I'm not sure God's going to be on the end of it. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So a lot of times it brings you what well, brings you face to face with the unbelief. It was down in our heart that we didn't see. You know, you don't see it till you get that confrontation. But I think one of the most encouraging things about the actual disciples, 12 disciples, is, is how much of a, of a disaster they were. And Jesus, Jesus didn't pick like the 12 biggest studs around. He picked guys that are just as broken as we are. And, he, and they constantly messed it up and he never left them. They did keep saying, where else am I going to go? I wish I could go somewhere else, but there's nowhere else to go. But he was so patient with them. And so if, if you're hearing this and you're like, man, I'm just, I can't be good enough for that. Just know how patient he is, how easily pleased he is. Uh, he's hard to satisfy, but he's easily pleased with us. And... And just be encouraged by that. He doesn't give up on his disciples, even when we're at our worst. Yeah, I think I, I kind of sit in the same place as Sarah and a few other people. Um, and I love that about verse 10. I've never really paid attention to the, the way that he starts. Jesus, do not be afraid. Yeah. <clears throat> when nobody really said anything about fear. Yeah, but you know, right. he he knew where Peter stands. Yeah, and at first, whenever we first finished the sermon, that was so powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Do not be afraid. Yeah, um, but as Sarah was talking, another word became very powerful, and it's from now on you, and that word you right there, like uh-huh. Simon Peter, you who just now professed to be a sinful man, Simon Peter, you who I will say Satan be gone from me. Simon Peter, you who will deny me. Yep. And it's like you, I'm promising you, you yeah. will do the, yeah. and it's like so powerful that Jesus just like pierces through all of his insecurities and all yeah. of his, I can't do this, Lord. Yeah, right. He says, no, no, I'm telling you. Yeah, right, yeah. Your Lord is telling yeah. you. Yeah. You will. Yeah. And it's just like, whoa. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Let me go ahead and call our, uh, musicians up, and let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that you would, that you would help us and give us a a spirit of surrender to you, um, 
that we would be those who come to the end of ourselves very quickly and who receive your grace in those places of need. Uh, Lord, would you let us experience your grace so that we are moved out and energized for your mission? Would you make us fishers of people here in Dade County as a church? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.